Let's do a Millennial Kingdom again. On your outline sheet, we're looking at C there under the basis, the kingdom in the Old Testament. What's the concept in the Old Testament? And I think this is important to understand the concept in the Old Testament because if the kingdom is Jewish, the future kingdom is Jewish, then it has to in some way at least resemble or in some way be related to the Jewish concept of a kingdom. And we derive the Jewish concept of a kingdom from the Old Testament. So let's take a look at the Old Testament concept. There is this idea of an eternal kingdom that dominates all things, that is sovereign over every other lesser kingdom. We call that an eternal kingdom, or at least that's how theologians would describe it. And it has a timeless element to it. Eric, you want to look up Daniel 4.3. Vivian, look up Psalm 103.19. Verse 3. Yeah, Daniel 4.3. While you're looking that up, there's also, you can just jot down in terms of the timeless aspect, Psalm 10.16 doesn't use the word kingdom, but it talks about the Lord. It says the Lord is king forever and ever. What's Psalm 10.16. The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his hand. Everything else is temporal. Even nations, they're temporal. They rise, they fall. But the Lord is king forever and ever. And then Daniel 3, or 4.3, you got it? Yes, sir. How great are his signs, and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. And Daniel is writing towards the end of the Old Testament period. And God's kingdom is everlasting. It always has existed. It always will exist. So this is the eternal kingdom, the eternal aspect, timeless aspect. And it's universal in that it encompasses every other kind of kingdom, including all Gentile kingdoms. Stay in Dan. You still in Daniel there? Because yes, I'll have you read. Why don't you read 32 right off the bat, and then we'll have uh, Vivian. Four, yeah, 432 is one. And this is Nebuchadnezzar. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. So there's a kingdom that is supreme over Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. And he's going to experience this experience until he recognizes that God is really the ultimate king. So it's a universal kingdom that transcends earthly kingdoms. And then Psalm 103, 19, Vivian? The Lord has established his throne in the heaven, and his sovereignty over all. Okay, his sovereignty is over all. Everything earthly, everything within the universe, we would describe that as universal. So it's a universal kingdom with no boundaries, no end, the broadest kingdom that you can think of. So that's the Old Testament concept, and David had it. Daniel is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar concerning it, or God is, so it's present in the Old Testament. 
So that's, there's an eternal kingdom in the Old Testament. There's also a theocratic kingdom where we could say that that begins even in Eden, in the garden, where the purpose of mankind is laid out. This is the purpose of man, is what? Remember, there's a twofold purpose there. One, first one, multiply, fill the earth, be fruitful, bear children, in other words, develop families. At the heart of God's work is family. Children, generations, people, that's at the heart of mankind's purpose. And then the second part is now you support that family by what? Subduing and ruling, right off the bat, ruling, the idea of dominion or rulership. And this is what God has delegated to mankind to rule the earth, starting with Adam and Eve. And then we see manifestations of that purpose as mankind develops. You see the rulership within the family, and then you see rulership within tribes. There's always leadership, and eventually tribes form into nations, and then you see rulership amongst nations, and it keeps working itself out until we come to the nation of Israel specifically, and we have rulership there. So Eden would be the first manifestation of the idea of God ruling through his delegated representative mankind. So that's sovereignty delegated to man to rule over the earth. Sin enters in and it's going to cause problems with that rulership. And actually the whole program, redemptive program begins but God continues to rule, and he will rule later on through human government, government established after the flood, Genesis 9. That government, by the way, is repudiated by, by Babel, the rebellion of God's rulership. God intended that mankind scatter, and man chooses to thwart that. Did you say Genesis 9? Genesis 9, yes first seven verses specifically. You could see tribes being ruled by patriarchs. So during the patriarchal period, Abraham had dominion as the father of all of the succeeding generations. And then eventually we have Israel as the patriarch over the 12 tribes. So you you say that was a a delegated authority? Yes. Patriarch? Mm Mm-hmm. Delegated to Abraham, who in some ways, it was a family because it didn't go beyond his family initially until later generations. So that's a deduction? Yes. Yeah, there's no specific verse like we have in other places. But we have hints of that in Genesis 49.10. Now this is later, this is Jacob, where God reveals to him that the scepter shall not depart from Judah... Judah is going to be a prominent ruling tribe, you could say. And it's predicted all the way back before there's even a nation. God delegating, working. The fall doesn't rule. It's still there. It's still there. It's hindered, but it's still there. Exactly. And you see manifestations of that rulership during the period of the judges. Each judge God raised up to do the work of a... Sovereign, you might say. They were like kings, although they're called judges. 
but they were deliverers. They delivered Israel from their local enemies. So these would be different manifestations of God sovereignly ruling through his delegated representatives on earth. So each judge would be considered a ruler. So the whole book of Judges. And then more specifically, we have kings, beginning with even Saul, and then prominently under David and Solomon. And even the ungodly kings were still rulers. They were still ruling, though sometimes idolatrous and sinful, or more sinful. And even Genesis 17, this is the Abrahamic covenant. Joe, do you want to read Genesis 17, 5 through 7? This is way early. This is just Abraham. This is why I believe, you know, 17, 5 through 7. No longer shall your name be Abraham, for I will make the father of the nations, and I will keep exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you and king, and I will establish my covenant your descendants after you throughout their nations. An everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Okay, that's the Abrahamic covenant. It's reiterated in chapter 17. But did you notice the little phrase in there? Nations are going to come from him, but what else? Kings. So I think in the plan of God, he intended kingship eventually. That's why I interpret that uh, First Samuel passage relating to uh, Samuel, where God says they haven't rejected you, but they've rejected me as king. It's not that God always wanted to be king over them. He always will and always has been king over them. But that does not negate the idea that he would designate physical kings as well. It was just not God's timing, plus the people's vision and attitude towards kingship was basically secular rather than God's idea. So God intended all the way into the Abrahamic covenant to raise up kings. So during the time of uh, Samuel, we have the raising of kings, which leads us to that particular kingdom. And this is probably the best time to speak of what do we see as we study those passages in particularly First Samuel, but you can read through all the way through Kings. What are the features of that kingdom of Israel? Because personally, I believe those same features are the features of the millennial kingdom. And the Davidic covenant, I think, anticipates this millennial kingdom as an outgrowth of the physical kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament. And you probably remember this slide because I've given it to you a couple of times. We looked at it on the foundations. We could say it's rooted in the creation mandate where God, by principle, delegates rulership to mankind. The idea of ruling. So it's rooted in that. So it's an outgrowth. The millennial kingdom is just the final outgrowth of the creation mandate. That's the Genesis 1.28 passage. The kingdom involves a distinct nation separate from all the others. Israel was distinct from the nations. It was God's people, God's nation. The millennial kingdom will have Israel as prominent. We're going to look at some verses that spell that out very specifically. Israel, the prominent nation in the millennial kingdom. There'll be other nations or other goyim, other ethne, other Gentiles, Translated either nations or Gentiles. 
There'll be a distinct nation. Secondly, there'll be a godly king. The kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament had a godly king, a king after God's own heart. Although David was a sinner like everyone else, the millennial kingdom will have what? Not only a godly king, but sinless king. And there's lots of passages that spell out the messianic king of the messianic kingdom. Fourthly, there'll be security and peace in the land. David subdued the enemies of Israel in his day. Solomon enjoyed security and peace and became the dominant nation of the world. They were the world empire during the reign of Solomon. And they were at peace, primarily established by the uh, subduing that David had accomplished during his reign. During the Millennial Kingdom, all enemies will be subdued, and Israel will be at peace. We're going to look at passages relating to both of those. There'll be security and peace in the Millennial Kingdom. All enemies will be subdued. Satan himself will be bound for that thousand-year Millennial Kingdom. No unbelievers will enter the Kingdom. All enemies subdued. The false prophet, Antichrist, will already have been cast into the Lake of Fire. So there'll be the ultimate security and peace in the Millennial Kingdom. And all of this is guaranteed by the Davidic Covenant. We've already read them again, some of those passages that speak in the distant future. Guaranteed. God, in these covenants, these are contracts. These are legal documents. God has legally bound himself to fulfill every aspect of the Davidic Covenant, which will not be completed until last millennial kingdom. There's a temple, the presence of God. God's going to manifest his presence. And he manifested his presence amongst Israel. That's kind of the main project of Solomon, to build the temple. And the climax of the whole thing is God manifested his glory amongst the nation of Israel in the temple. There's lots of passages referring to the millennial temple. God will manifest himself once again. Once God departed from the temple. Remember in Ezekiel, God departs from the temple. He never returned. The Herodian temple did not have the Shekinah glory, did not have the visible presence of God. That visible presence became flesh, dwelt amongst men. That physical presence will be again manifest in Israel. Messiah will be in the midst, in resurrected body. And the presence of the Father will probably be manifest also in that millennial temple. There'll be a millennial temple. We'll talk about that as well. Speaking of major events, the time when the Shekinah glory left. That's a major event. Yes, absolutely. Seventh, great blessing. The emphasis of the story of Solomon is just the wealth and, you know, the prominence of material possessions and abundance of production of animals and production of crops. That's just a foretaste of the millennial kingdom. You might even could conclude that had Solomon been faithful and or even sinless, he may have introduced the millennial kingdom and these things would have been even greater and more expansive. But because he's human and sinful, we have the opposite. We're going to have all of those great blessings, and that's the emphasis of the Isaiah passages, the Jeremiah, the Ezekiel passages, this great blessing. If you take the passages literally, we're talking about abundant rainfall. We're talking about 
the flourishing of crops, great fertility amongst animals, and even fertility amongst people, great blessing during the millennial kingdom. And we also have a missionary nation. This was God's design for the nation of Israel. These are all the elements of that kingdom of Israel and Judah, a missionary nation. They were intended to be the light of the world. They were intended to share Yahweh with the nations. And the nations were to come to Jerusalem and hear the word of God and to worship the one true God. Israel was to be the uh, missionary nation. We have a little glimpse of that in what? Under Solomon. What happened under Solomon? Queen Queen of Sheba came and it refers to other peoples that came to see this magnificence that God had manifested on earth. This abundance, this blessing. And there's others that are mentioned as well. That just gives a little glimpse of what it would be like during the Millennial Kingdom. The nations, and there's specific passages that speak of the nations coming to worship in Jerusalem, on his holy hill, some of the passages refer to. Temple Mount. That's why it's important to walk on Temple Mount. We're going to spend time there in the future, worshiping, get familiar with it. So these are some of the major features of the kingdom under David and Solomon that are just a prototype, I think, of the millennial kingdom. This is why when we say we're premillennial and we take these passages literally, this is what you find in all of those passages. Where's the church in all of that? <laughs> it's not there. It's not there. It's not number nine, right? <laughs> we're kind of uh, afterthought, you might even say, if God... Could have no. an afterthought, right? No. <laughs> no. No, our time's coming. Our time's coming. <laughs> we'll be a part. We will be a part of the kingdom, but we will be there in resurrected bodies. These aspects pertain to the nation of Israel in the millennial kingdom in material, physical, mortal bodies. And beyond. I mean, we will be a part of that as well. And other resurrected saints will be as well. So this theocratic kingdom manifested itself in the actual kings and a kingdom of the nation of Israel. And God will also, in some sense, you could say, even rule through prophets, at least the word. He's ruling through the word, calling Israel back to repentance, back to a walk, back to fellowship with himself. Israel spurns and kills the prophets and eventually rejects the ultimate prophet. Messiah himself. So that's the form of the kingdom, the the concept of the kingdom. And besides all of that, there are many Old Testament prophets and promises that look forward to the kingdom. Most prominent would be the Davidic covenant itself. You can just write this one down, 2 Samuel 7, 16 through 19 at least, if not the whole chapter. Also, let's see, Mark, you want to look up Psalm 2? Sheila, Daniel 2, Jim, Isaiah 9, Hinata, Daniel 7, Eric, Zechariah 14. So these are all, these are the most prominent passages that pertain to Old Testament promises. And we've already mentioned the starting point, the, do, the dominion purpose of Genesis 1.28, where man is to rule, subdue and rule the earth. Everything else just comes out of that and eventuates into a kingdom. Psalm 2, read the first few verses there. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? 
The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from He who sits on the heavens laughs, who scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king on Zion. My and you can read on, and it's going to describe more that king that is installed in Zion. Not a spiritual Zion, or not in the church, per se. In Zion. It's going to be a king. And from the perspective of the psalmist, it's already done. And did you notice the Trinitarian aspect of that passage that was read? The Lord and whom? His anointed. That's Messiah. As, and the Father, the Yahweh, and His anointed Yahweh. So, it, we have a dominion purpose, and we have it designated by Yahweh Himself in Psalm 2.19. We have the Davidic covenant that we mentioned, Second Samuel 7.14, and on, you could say. And there's also other passages, but let's read these first. Let's read Daniel. Start with 2.9. Sheila? If you do not make known until the time has changed. It is difficult to tell it to King Okay, so what he's going to describe in the following verses is this dominion that transcends all earthly dominions. Skip to verse 35 and read it. This is that there's going to be an ultimate kingdom that has never been seen on planet Earth. Then and, the iron, the silver, and the away so that no trace of... <coughs> The stone that struck the end and filled the whole. This is the you, O king, are. Really okay, God. now he's just going to interpret the vision that, that Nebuchadnezzar had. But uh, notice that that stone that crushes all other kingdoms, the imagery is that final ultimate kingdom. That has never happened. In other words, there's always been human dominions. Even in the first century, there was a Roman Empire, and even since then, there has not been this kingdom. That is anticipated. So it's this is a future kingdom. This is millennial. And I think Daniel spells that out in that, that passage. Not as clearly as other passages. What was that passage? That's Daniel 2. And remember, this is after that earthly kingdom of David and Solomon and the following kings was destroyed. Daniel's in captivity. Yeah, she read verse 9 through about 11 in there. And then all the way to chapter 2, verse 35. And then you're going to read one of the clearest passages, Isaiah 9, 7. Start with 6. We have the incarnation and then 6 and 7. I'm sorry. Christmas reading. Yeah. Yep. Let him ask his question. I was just going to say, how do you spiritualize that? He's never had the government on his shoulders. Yeah, that's the problem. That's the problem, spiritualizing it. You know, his kingdom is invisible. That's how they do it. His kingdom is invisible. He's ruling today, and the government is on his shoulders today, but you can't see it. We're read 6 and 7. <laughs> For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest in his name, will be called Wonder Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end increase of his or of peace. And the throne of David and over his kingdom establish it, and hold it with justice and rights from then on in the zeal of the world. Very specific. Throne of David, government, a lot of detail there, never fulfilled. Read Zechariah. <laughs> Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14, 4 through about 11. 
And that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem. This is the messianic figure that's already been described. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward, toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountain, for the valley of the mountain reached to Azel. Yes, flee, just as you had before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord, my God, will come and all the holy ones. In that day there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle. That's tribulation. For it will be, <clears throat> for it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about at evening. Time. At, at evening time, there will be light. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. That's millennial. Half of them toward the eastern sea, and the other half toward the western sea. That's never happened. <laughs> it will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one in his name. Okay, that's... Did you see the progression there? There's a clear Jewish eschatological progression there. That's still with point two, right? Yeah, yeah. Let me make sure I have it all here. All right. Daniel got... 7, 11, correct? No. 7, 14. 14. Okay. And then skip to 27. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every religion worship. All nations and peoples worship. Who? Keep reading. His dominion is an everlasting Everlasting dominion. That will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. 27. 27. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed to the holy people most high. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship him. That's millennial. You want to look up? Isaiah 11, 1 through 3, I'll have you read a bunch in there. So we have the dominion purpose. The Lord designates this himself, Psalm 2, 1 through 5. It's based on the Davidic covenant, and it's theocratic in that God will, in this case, utilize kings, and a particular king that's spelled out in the first three verses of Isaiah 11. Uh, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his root will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what he, his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. Okay, the theocratic instrument is Messiah himself. And it'll also be, we have a description of the character of it. It's going to be a righteous kingdom, reach four and five. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the He will strike thee with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay thee. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his Righteousness spelled out two times. Righteous kingdom. It's going to be a government. Never has that been fulfilled. Physical changes are described. You could use that Zechariah passage for physical changes as well. Read 6 through 8. Physical changes. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and the little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Their nursing child will play by the hole, and the weaned child will put his hand on the bike. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain as the water is covered. 
So very specific physical changes or character of it, as well as governmental character like righteousness with a theocratic representative, Messiah himself. And these are just some of the promises, just a few of them, kind of representative Old Testament promises. None of those have ever been fulfilled. And verse 9, worldwide, the whole earth, worldwide. Tremendous passage, Isaiah 11. And these are just some, some from the Old Testament. There's also New Testament expectation. This is what all of the apostles expected. They expected a literal kingdom. And remember the apostles, what were they? Were they Gentile? They were Jewish. And if they were Jewish and the word kingdom, they were thinking of a messianic figure. They were thinking of Israel as prominent without domination of enemies. So they were looking for something that had security and peace. They were thinking in terms of God manifesting his presence amongst them. They were thinking about all those aspects that we just looked at. That's what they expected. That's what they asked Jesus when he ascended. Is it time now? You've risen, you've died, and ready to do it? <laughs> and they do it not only early in his ministry, Luke 19.11, while they were listening to this, he went to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And what they expected the kingdom of God to accomplish was deliver them from the Roman Empire. That's why several of them rejected him. And I think what Eric is referring to is Acts 1.6. This is after the resurrection. And remember what the disciples said? They asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to who? To Israel. Because Israel's prominent. They were looking for Israel at the heart of the kingdom. Acts 1.6. I think his his, uh, his response is interesting because he never says, no, I'm not. He just says, that's not for you to know. Right now. It's yeah. going to happen. I've got a long ministry <laughs> for you first. I've got 2,000 years for you to chew on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Better not to know. Yeah, too discouraging, exactly. Christ is introduced as the Messiah. So there was an expectation. You want to read Luke 1, Joe, 32 and 33, Luke 1. We kind of jumped ahead. The next one, disciples expected the kingdom. These are that's a Luke nineteen eleven and Acts one six. But let's yeah, for you, Luke one, thirty-two to thirty-three. This is describing the baby Jesus. He will be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High, Lord God with one of his fathers. What? The throne of David. He's just a baby. Keep reading. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom. Wow. That's before he's even grown up. So that's the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. He's introduced as ruling. And then we read the verses pertaining to the disciples. And there's promises concerning inheriting the kingdom. There's lots of those passages. Inheriting the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, for example. 6, 9 through 10. Galatians 5, verse 21 inheriting the kingdom as a reward. Now, this is what Israel anticipated. They anticipated inheriting the kingdom as well. That's a New Testament concept. Mm-hmm. And even Paul, at the end of his life, 2 Timothy 4.1, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom. 4.1, 2 Timothy 4.1. 
And then he says, I give you this charge. So he's going to exhort them in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. And in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. So the question is, what did Jesus offer when he came, claiming to be Messiah? I believe he offered the kingdom that the Jewish people expected with all of those characteristics that we looked at. The initial offer, turn to Matthew's Gospel. The kingdom of God have nations? Yes. And so will the millennial kingdom. Right, I know that. Yep. Okay. The initial offer in 417, now this is preceded, John the Baptist had already mentioned and introduced, he says in chapter 3, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah, the prophet, saying, and then he quotes Isaiah there, and Isaiah 40 is a messianic passage. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in a Jewish mind, the kingdom of heaven is that kingdom that's going to deliver them, take them out from under the dominion of the Roman Empire, the Roman kingdom. And this is what Jesus is saying as well. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Messiah is here. And in Jewish eschatology, when the Messiah arrives, he will establish the kingdom. That's what he offered. You can trace through the Gospel of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. I believe the essence of that sermon is to prepare disciples for the coming of the kingdom. Now, the way we can apply it is we want to be prepared for the coming of the kingdom as well. So we can apply those same principles. Prepare us for the millennial kingdom. There's a variety of ways of taking the Sermon on the Mount. I think that's the best one is its preparation for those that want to enter the kingdom. Chapters 8 through 9, those miracles are designed to authenticate that Jesus is the king. So when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he is really the king that can introduce Israel to the kingdom or to establish a kingdom. And he performs messianic miracles. So what happened to the kingdom? What is Matthew twelve fourteen? Mark, do you want to read that one? That's what Jesus offered. He, as Messiah, as Messianic King, and by the way, the main theme of the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus is portrayed as the Messianic King. And a prominent feature of the Messianic King, and more often than any of the other Gospels, are references to the kingdom that the Messianic king will bring. So, Mark, what happened to the kingdom? 12, 14, Matthew. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. That's the official decision of the leaders that basically was the conclusion of the nation. And the nation essentially rejected the king. And if you reject the king, you obviously reject the kingdom. All right? And beginning in chapter 13, verse 1, we have a shift in the whole ministry of Jesus. The turning point is chapter 12. If you read on, the conclusion is that, well, what about his miracles? Well, he performs miracles by the power of Beelzebub. He's demonic. He's a false messiah. He's to be rejected. 
So in verse 14, they plot to kill him. And eventually they do on the cross. They put him on the cross. So now he's shifted. He is officially rejected. And now he's going to concentrate on ministering to those that had believed in him. And he's going to give them a brief picture of an interim period of time. And he's going to lay out a new form of how God is going to rule until he returns to re-offer the kingdom, to establish the kingdom. And those are the parables of the kingdom where we have the mystery, the mystery kingdom. And Matthew makes clear in 21, Sheila, do you want to get those verses, 42 through 43? The kingdom that was offered by the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Messianic King, I believe, I summarize it with the one word, is removed. Get 42 and 43? Jesus said to them, this was, and it is marked. Therefore I say to you, and whoever falls on the stone. Now there's a lot that we could say in that, but the essence of what he's talking about there, he's the stone. He's the foundation to a kingdom. He's also the foundation to a new entity that he introduced earlier. He's the rejected stone, but it becomes the cornerstone. What's, who's the king, who, who is the be given to a nation producing the fruit of that nation? Israel. But it's not the first century Israel. Tribulation Israel. It's the tribulation Israel. Very good, yeah. To be given to another generation, essentially, what Jesus is saying there. And in verse 43, he's describing... Well, what did he the millennium? says it will be producing the fruit of it. Israel produces the fruit in the tribulation. They're converted. And then when he returns, he establishes that kingdom for that generation that is converted during the tribulation. So verse 43 is it's removed from the first century, and there's another generation that will benefit from the Messianic king. And I think Matthew is the one that's most specific. Now, you'll see parallel passages in other Gospels, but you have this thread that I think Matthew... One of the things that Matthew is explaining, if Jesus is the Messiah, which is the main theme, if Jesus is the Messianic King, what happened to the kingdom? And this is a key passage explaining that. It's removed from that generation. And the Olivet Discourse makes it clear that it's postponed till a second advent. It's Matthew 24 and 25. And chapter 25 is specific in that the kingdom of heaven, this is after the return of Messiah, the kingdom of heaven is compared, first of all, to ten virgins. Then we have the second parable. Then we have a third parable. The third one is introduced very clearly relating to the kingdom, separation of sheep and goats. We have little glimpses in parable form of at least the beginning of this millennial kingdom. So could this be the reason there's so much... A lot of believers, churches, 25, and try to put it in the um, spiritual kingdom of God that's happening right now. It doesn't fit. No, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Doesn't fit. But that's kind of the motivation to go for the hunger. But it's that's not now. That's that parable that is mis yeah. misapplied. Now, I think you can draw principles. Yes, I agree with that. But what the heart of what Jesus is talking about is millennial conditions. In other words, and it goes back to the tribulation situation as well. Um, those that give evidence of regeneration, because in a very difficult time, they helped Jesus' brothers, if you will, the way it's put in the passage. Yeah, the context is very important. So, Jesus explains in the Gospel of Matthew particularly what happened to that kingdom. It's postponed, and we will not see it until 
after the second coming. <laughs> we didn't miss it. What do you got? Oh, I just noticed that Ryrie's note on verse 43 of Matthew. Mm-hmm. Matthew 25? No, Matthew oh. 21 43. Oh. Ryrie says, taken away from you, given to a nation, taken away from the Jews, and given to the church. Oh, wow. Ryrie's... You, you can't... He wasn't infallible. That's right. <laughs> he cross-references First Peter 2. Uh, that's surprising. That is surprising. <laughs> that is surprising. So... What if games are always? Yeah, Ryrie is the definer of dispensationalism. <laughs> Jesus is That's offering. The one, uh, he, he quotes First uh, Peter two nine. Uh, isn't that the one about? That you are a chosen race. First Peter was written to Jews. Remember what? I mean, you just pointed yes. that out last week. Yeah, written to Jews. And so, kind of missed it. He kind of missed it. I think. Yeah. Eric. Right, if, so Jesus is offering the physical for the first time. If they would have taken it, he no longer is crucified. How did we deal with sin? Well, <laughs> the Roman Empire would have crucified him. Oh, he still would have been crucified. Oh, yeah, he had to okay. fulfill Isaiah. That's what I'm saying. It's, it yeah. had to happen. Yeah. Okay. That's why the disciples, after he was crucified in Acts 1-6, mm-hmm. okay, now I see Isaiah 53. Okay, that's fulfilled. Check that box off. Are you going to establish Now are you going to do it? <laughs> are you going to establish the kingdom now? I, I have a little bit of a problem with the idea that it's restored, the kingdom is restored to the tribulation, because it's not a kingdom. No. It seems like the Well, I think what Eric was referring to is we were asking what nation, and it's that tribulation Jewish nation. When he returns, he establishes the kingdom. But they show the works of... Uh, they show the works of regenerate. They're regenerate. Yeah. Yeah. During the... During the tribulation. Yeah, because they're converted during the tribulation. You could say that the... But it says, well, and therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation. Yeah. Producing the food. Right. So the giving of it still it would be the millennium. Yes. Yes. Yes, it's a millennial so kingdom. It, it, it doesn't happen I until... It. It's yeah. the nation that's given to you. Yeah. I got it. It's the people that are alive during the tribulation right. that are converted, Jewish I, people. Thank you. I, I yep. just, just didn't... It's funny because this, this version here says the people. Yeah, he's populating the kingdom already during the tribulation, and then they enter it and he establishes it. Mark, did you ever? Well, I was just going to say, you wouldn't classify, you wouldn't say that the nation in the tribulation might say Jews, because not until the very end does he then say. Right, the entire nation, yeah. I think they progressively accept Christ during that time, but. They're not complete until the... Okay. Well, so why don't we reserve the major events of the Millennial Kingdom till next time. So we'll do two things. We'll do the events of the Kingdom, and then we'll also talk about the conditions. And if you look at the passages, take them literally, the descriptions of the conditions, there's no way that the Kingdom is now or uh, has ever manifested in, in time. Okay, any Questions on the basis? That's all kind of the foundation or basis for a millennial kingdom, things we talked about. Hmm? Well, it is, and if you read it and you interpret, like, literally, boom, there's no way you cannot, you know, can miss it, you know? Unless otherwise you have reasons to really not want to believe. Exactly. That's the way I see it. Exactly. It's you're, literal. You're absolutely right. <laughs> So let's take a look at the major events of the Millennial Kingdom. 
We've already talked about judgments when we talked about the great tribulation because that's the main emphasis of the period of tribulation. That's the one of the main purposes as well is to bring judgment and describe what that judgment is like. So there's many associated judgments. And just real quickly, let's look primarily at the book of Revelation and then we'll look at a couple of other places as well. All of these are Revelation 19, 1 through 16. We have the second coming. So there are several judgments that occur at the second coming itself. And I pull this slide from my exposition of the book of Revelation. So sometimes I use alliteration. So some of these are, are a little forced, but I think you get the point. So I call the next one squelching enemies. In order to get an S in there, it's a little stretchy. We squelching more. Like yeah, that. we had to use that more often, right? That's nineteen seventeen through twenty one, and we essentially have the judgment of Antichrist and the false prophet described in there. That's on the occasion of the second coming, and actually, it's within that passage. or some other things in there as well. So. Primarily the judgment of Antichrist. We have a specific time frame for that. That's on the occasion of the second coming. Antichrist and uh, false prophet. The seizure of Satan. That's not a judgment, but in the chronology of the book of Revelation, Revelation 21 through 3, he's bound. Call that the seizure of Satan. He's bound for a thousand years. And then at the second coming, and we've looked at all of these, we talked about even before the second coming, or if you want to call it the first phase of the second coming, the rapture, saints enter into at least evaluation, the Bema. And we looked at that when we talked about the church. You might refer your notes to judgment of the saints. And we just mentioned Antichrist and false prophet. And then from the Jesus' Olivet Discourse, that's probably the central passage where... Jesus describes the preliminaries to the millennial kingdom. We have a judgment for Israel. That seems to be the context or the time frame. So that would be Matthew 25, verse 30 verses. Remember, he prefaces it with the kingdom of heaven will be like. So this judgment is associated with the kingdom of heaven. And it is separating out those that will participate in the kingdom from those that will not We also have in that same chapter a judgment of the nations, same context, Olivet Discourse. We looked at that judgment. And the judgment of the nations will separate the living people during the tribulation, those that accept Christ from those that do not. I think that's the context. Similarly, we're dealing with mortal Israelites that survive the great tribulation. Those that are believers enter the kingdom. Those that do not are excluded similarly with the nations. On our timeline, we used this before when we were talking about the tribulation. Satan is bound at the beginning of the millennium. Another major event are the description of resurrection of saints. And we touched on some of that as well. I'm just kind of giving you the context here in terms of the millennial kingdom. So let's describe some of that as well. Book of Revelation describes two classes. There's a first and a second resurrection in Revelation chapter 20. Two classes. Now, in the book of Revelation, it's not 
crystal clear as to who are in, in view there. But those that are part of the first resurrection, I would include Old Testament saints, possibly, unless, now there's different views, some believe that the Old Testament saints would be resurrected with the church, but a case could be made that it's only the church, because it's a unique period of time in terms of the beginning and end of the church age. So if Old Testament saints aren't resurrected, well, by this time, they're already they're resurrected, whether the rapture or in view of Revelation chapter 20. So that's a possibility. We also have New Testament promises that deal with the resurrection. And if you want some verses for resurrection, even Job, as early as the book of Job, Job 19, 25 through 27, Job longs for death as a way of relief because he anticipates being with the Lord and being obviously away from the suffering that he's experiencing. Exodus 3, 6, Jesus quotes that passage. If you remember, it's not clear in the Exodus passage, but Jesus, when he's answering a question concerning resurrection, that's the passage he quotes. And he does it in Matthew 22, 31-32. A clearer passage in terms of David, David anticipated his own resurrection in Psalm 16, and this one is also quoted quoted by uh, Peter on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 as a resurrection Old Testament passage. Psalm 49 is another passage that speaks of resurrection, so this is an Old Testament concept as well. In the New Testament... Christ, on several occasions, predicted his own resurrection, and he taught the not only his own, but taught the idea that believers in him would also be resurrected. Then we have several passages in the writings of Paul. 1 Corinthians 15 is the central passage in the New Testament that promises resurrection. Now, putting that together with 1 Thessalonians 4, you could include that one as well, it appears that at least the church is resurrected at the rapture, what we describe as the rapture. In Revelation chapter 20, we have, as I mentioned, first and second, but also you might turn to 1 Corinthians, what is it, 15, where it talks about different orders of resurrections. Is that verse 15? Since you've got it, you want to read that? But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since a man came death by man, also came the resurrection. Yeah. For as in Adam all die, <clears throat> so also in Christ all. But each in his own order. Christ there you go. The first there's, fruits. there's the word there. In their own order. Okay. Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ as coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. We'll come back to that. But notice in that passage, he's speaking of different orders, which indicates that resurrection probably is not just one instantaneous occasion. Like most amillennialists, they see one judgment. They also see one resurrection and that everybody is resurrected at that one, one phase. So there are orders of resurrection. And the, the thing that we need to, to do is try to sort out when these resurrections take place. Obviously, Christ is the first fruits in the 1 Corinthians passage, 
And then there appears to be at least two classes, or at least two orders, you might say. That of believers, that's the first resurrection. And that of unbelievers, which doesn't give us a precise time, but it makes sense at the great white throne. So we have these different orders of resurrection. And I would say at the second coming, there there appears to be a resurrection. What is a little clearer are the participants... In other words, those who are resurrected, and before we're done, we will account for everyone. In Revelation 20, let's turn to it, and Jim, why don't you read verse 4, first of all. This is a heavenly vision again. John sees several of them in the book of Revelation. 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of the headed because of the testimony of Jesus and those beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their, which came to, they came to life and reigned with Christ. So the question is, who are these? And I think verse 4 makes clear at least one particular group. The first part of the verse, I saw thrones and they sat upon them. That could be a distinct group from the second sentence there. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. It's possible that those are two two different groups. If so, then who are the they that sat upon these thrones? Obviously, this is a millennial throne because it's identified with a thousand years here. It's in the context of references to this thousand years in verse 2 and in verse 3. So these are millennial thrones, and these are those that have been promised rulership. So these are people that seem to have already been resurrected. And personally, it appears, I think, the best conclusion of the day would include at at least Old Testament saints and the body of Christ as well, the church. That's the first group there. And if there is, in fact, a second group, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded It gives us, because of the testimony of Jesus, because of the word God, etc., what context is he describing in that latter part of verse 4? Tribulation. Yeah, I think it's clearly tribulation. Too many little details there to, to see anything else. So these would include saints that come out or are resurrected and died during the tribulation. Okay, so those are the resurrections. And then let's read on. Vivian, verse... Five and six. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years. This is resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who had part in the first. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him. Notice the distinction there. Two resurrections. Now, I think the context, when it says this is the first resurrection, verse six clarifies it and makes it clear that those in the first resurrection are those that are the believers that are described. And I think it would include all of those that have been resurrected up to this point. That's the first resurrection. And then verse 6 also talks about a second resurrection after a thousand years. So there's the time frame for that second resurrection. So in essence, every person, whether believer or unbeliever, is resurrected. And we see confirmation of that in the teaching of Jesus. Jesus referred to a... Resurrection to life and a resurrection to destruction. Two resurrections. There's two general resurrections. John 5, 28 and 29. 
This is Jesus. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Then he distinguishes them. Those who have done good will will rise to live, and those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. This is the passage that I was referring to. So there's a resurrection to eternal life, and there's a resurrection to condemnation. Also, Acts 24, 15, the end of the verse, there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Two resurrections, first and second. Righteous and wicked. And the book of Revelation makes that distinction right here. So unbelievers are raised as well. And this, what is it that keys you to the unbelievers? I see that. Well, over these, let's see, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. And if you keep reading, there's going to be a second death. But I thought the second death was unbelievers. Well, it's receive a second. That's right. So that's what he's saying. But they will be priests of God and will reign with him a thousand years. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were completed. That's the rest of the dead. They, they are resurrected. That's the point I'm making is the second resurrection is of unbelievers. So then what about the last sentence in verse 5? It says this, the first resurrection. That's the point I'm making. The context, the first resurrection refers back to the believers. Yeah, back to verse 4. So whoever the they are and whoever the, and more than likely, tribulation saints, that's the first resurrection. Well, it sure doesn't feel comfortable over Yeah, it seems out of place. Yeah, it seems like that should have been. Yeah, but that's the best way to take it because there's the second yeah. resurrection. Almost okay. like you put a parenthesis around the first part of verse 5. Parenthetical? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, well, by the way, they're not, you know, trying to explain who's not going to do Yes. Yeah. You can take it parenthetically. I had a, a note down here that, where it says uh, this is the first resurrection and the first of its kind. Um, that would be a good way of taking it. Yeah. First of its kind or first of its order. Not necessarily sequentially. Yeah. yeah I, would, I, I wouldn't have a problem with that. Does that make sense, Jim? Okay. We started with Inada. Why don't you quote us for us, Eric? All right. Appreciate it, brother. Uh, thank you so much for this time. For your goodness to us, for revealing your truth, uh, precept upon precept, and benefits from your character and who you are. As we go through this week, we will be quick to, to share with others because there's such an interest to do with us. I thank you for writing his, his knowledge. Diligence to not just to gain we pray for the rest of this world. Do you write tables? We'll serve them if you will. Amen.